And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today is the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Mark, it's an honor to have you with us today. Great to be here again, Dan. You know, uh, last week on A Plain Answer, we just touched the surface of the importance of the Protestant Reformation, and we took a different approach. We were talking about some of the myths of the Reformation where people kind of get it wrong and they mm-hmm. they really misunderstand uh, what the substance of the Reformation was. And so we, we were talking with Pastor Yuri Brito of uh, Florida, but um, there's so much more to cover. And so we wanted to get together today and, and continue to talk about the Reformation and Mark, I think you mentioned to me before we opened the mic that you tend to celebrate the Reformation like a week before Reformation Day, all the way through. What were you saying? Thanksgiving up, up to Thanksgiving. Then, <laughs> then I then I preach a Thanksgiving service, and then we're in Advent. You know, yeah. so so from 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 Reformation the Sunday before Reformation, whatever I'm preaching on it, and as it turned out this year, I just finished Ephesians. Oh, yeah. So I'm not don't have a big gap, but otherwise it's a large gap because you go. And I preach on the Reformation up to Thanksgiving. From Thanksgiving, you have Advent, Christmas, and I'm, I'm not back to what I've been preaching through until January. Well, of course, yeah. in January now, we're starting something new, which is great. So, But anyhow, I, I, I think it's good to have a understand how important the Reformation was. I, I think it's the yes. biggest thing since, the, since Jesus uh, came to earth, the Incarnation, and and his ascension, the biggest thing in history was the Reformation. Well, that's quite a statement, and uh, hopefully we'll get into that a little bit more today. And again, before we open the mic, you were mentioning Luther, certainly, uh, Calvin, Tyndale, Knox, and there's a whole host of other Reformers as well. Um, the thing that comes to my mind, uh, too, I, I wanted to make sure we also talk about briefly, is the ripple effect of this Reformation not only infecting the theology and affecting the church, but even the spheres outside the church. So I'll turn it back to you now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and especially even in 1525, you had a peasant's revolt, which was kind of, you know, um, I mean, Luther opposed it. He he didn't like the chaos and, and the anarchy that was going on with that. But you you you're starting to see something with the people looking at that and saying, "Here we're created with the imago dei," and yeah. and and the scriptures saying we're all equal in God's eyes. Uh, now that was a, a radical departure from what the whole concept was then, and of course, what that eventually led to was the American Revolution. Now I've heard you say this before, and it's absolutely true that uh, the 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 first Great Awakening preceded the American Revolution and is inextricably linked to that American Revolution. Right. You have a a very strong Protestant uh, worldview, which is driving that, and, and a strong biblicism. And if you look especially at the First Great Awakening and all these preachers and the, the American Revolution, uh, they're almost to a man— and for the American Revolution. Yeah, and they're from the um, the perspective of the Reformation. Right. And so what we have is the philosophy of the Reformation is the philosophy behind the American Revolution, not 
you know, not the Enlightenment. I mean, the Enlightenment has something to do with it. But all you have to do is compare the French Revolution, which wasn't that far after the American Revolution. Um, And and you see the, the outcomes were so drastically different. That's your Enlightenment Revolution. That is so true. So that you can see the contrast. And on top of that, I can argue, I mean, even King George III called it that. Presbyterian Revolution. Yeah, I remember you saying that some time ago. Yeah, yeah, it's there's interesting. Some de- there's some debate whether he actually said it, but it, 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 at least it was one of his advisors who said it, and he certainly didn't disagree with it. Now, last week we talked about some of the myths of the Reformation, and that's on our website, if you, dear listener, if you want mm-hmm. to go back and listen to that. Now, you had some specific information. I thought you brought a book here, yeah. uh, Luther and stuff well, like that. Can you share with what, what's on your mind? Sure. Here's what I'd like to do. When we look at the Reformation, of course, it was two years ago where it was the 500th anniversary of the of the Reformation, Luther nails the ninety five theses on the Wittenberg door. Okay, um, that Luther that was very early Luther. Yes, that started the Reformation. But the fact of the matter is, uh, the the real Protestant Reformation really didn't get rolling till after that. I mean, mm-hmm. that sure. was the start. That was that was a spark that 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 lit the flame. You could almost argue that you really don't have. The thing full orbed until 1530 in the Augsburg Confession. But a lot is going on in between there, and you have a lot of things that is, is formational for Luther. And, and so what I mm-hmm. like to do, um, and what I've been doing in, in my church is, is preaching on the things that happened 500 years ago. So last year, uh, we looked basically at Luther standing before Cardinal Cajetan and, uh, that was not very satisfying because Cajetan basically asked Luther to come back into the fold, treat him as like a father. And when Luther started to argue, basically Cajetan said, "No, we're not. We're not going to have any discussions. Right. And, and come back in." There's also uh, a, a little uh, thing that he did at Augsburg, and uh, that you know these are all form- formational. Now, in 1519, there are two things that I think are, are very key. Luther preached a sermon on the two types of righteousness. Now, some argue it might have been back in 1518, but uh, I think it's probably in 1519, early spring 1519. The two types of righteousness, and it, and it really crystallizes and makes clear uh, justification by grace through faith. And you see that that sola gratia, sola Christos, sola fides uh, coming in strongly there. And in that sermon, he talks about two types of kinds of righteousness. The second kind of righteousness he hardly spends any time with. The first kind of righteousness, he calls it alien righteousness. Now, it has nothing to do with Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> He's talking about a righteousness that's completely outside of ourselves. And, of course, that righteousness resides in Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he had and the righteousness he imputes to us because he came and died on the cross, rose three days later. Now, that's important here. Um, When you're talking about a righteousness outside ourselves, the normal setting we come into this world with, I think, is that we can earn our salvation through exactly some kind of, right. some, you know, 
obeying this rule, obeying that law, uh, doing stuff, even believing on Jesus sometimes is viewed as a work. Yes. And, and it's all of grace. I mean, there's nothing. There is absolutely not a shred of credit we can take for ourselves when this flows from the Lord in pure grace. It's, it's something that's outside the human ability when God does this miraculous work in man's heart. Absolutely, and that's exactly what Luther was emphasizing. It's completely outside ourselves. Mm. And in fact, if we do good works before we have faith in Jesus Christ— those good works are not really good. They're sinful. They count for nothing. They count for no- not only they no, count they, for no. nothing. They're actually sin, is what yeah. Luther would say. And and I should I should put it different in in terms of God's common grace, if I can even use that term. Mm-hmm. It's a weak term, maybe. Um, they may have some benefits to, to society. Absolutely. Let's say an atheist does something that's quote unquote good. Uh, in terms of God's common grace, yeah, it may benefit society. Maybe help build a wall for the local area hospital or whatever. So in that sense, it's good, but it. It attributes zero, nothing, nada, to his eternal salvation. And that's right. And it does nothing to – he's not being done for the honor of God and his glory. Right. And so that's where Luther can come in and, and, and take into the second aspect of righteousness, and that's the righteousness we get after we believe in Jesus Christ. Then we can do good works. Yeah. Now, some might say, well, you know, there's this law and grace thing, and it's all of grace, so therefore we just throw out the law. We just run it over with a truck. But it's not true, is it? No, not not at all. At that point, what you're doing is you're taking the law and using it as a guide so that you can please God. And and that's his will. I mean, that's... It's his will. You're yeah. looking to do his will. Well, how do you know God's will? And this is where we really get into when we start looking into the Leipzig disputation. And so this was the, the, the big thing that occurred... Now, how do you spell that? In 1519, Leipzig. Okay, it's German. So it's L-E-I-P-Z-I-G. Okay. Leipzig. Yep. I'm not a German. I mean, I don't, ha- I don't well, know see, German. See, I wish see, I knew see, German. See, but. if you're... See, since you got Dutch, you would call it the Leipzig. Oh, there we go. See, the Dutch it emphasizes the first sounds, letter. Already sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyhow, we have the Leipzig disputation, and, and this is where Luther really gets a chance to debate and express his views. Now, the interesting thing about this disputation, first of all, it was held in Leipzig, and, and Leipzig was held by uh, Duke George. And George is very much Roman Catholic, mm. and so uh, the 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 person that's going to come to debate is Johannes Eck. Now, Johannes hmm. Eck was a very good scholar, and he was a big man, and he was also a a very dynamic speaker. His last name spells E C K. E C K. Yeah. Johannes Eck. We, we run into him also in the. Uh, died of Augsburg. Hmm. So, and he's, is he German? Um, yeah, I believe he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's there, and and so he's on the Catholic side. Now Luther is coming along with Andreas Badenstein von Karlstadt. Karlstadt is actually the one that's going to be debating Eck 
initially. Now, and and then Philip Melanchthon comes along with him. Mm-hmm. And when Eck is there, the town council gives him a bodyguard and he's all protected. When when Karlstad and Luther and Melanchthon come, there are 200 students that come and join them <laughs> along with battle axes, you know. So oh, they, no. they, in a sense, have their own bodyguard, <laughs> if you will. So, but understand what this is. This is not like the, the uh, Democrat debates that we've been seeing recently where, you know, you get a, <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> you, you get a bunch of people that stand up there and maybe maybe the thing will last three hours. No, no, this thing lasted three weeks. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was the end of June in into the and middle of July. I love those battle axes. That's neat. <laughs> yeah. so, and, and, and so we have this thing coming together and uh, we have the debate initially for the first week. It's, it's going to be between Karlstadt and Eck. Now, the way they started this thing was 6 a.m. they had a mass. So you get up and you went to mass at 6 a.m. before they started. The, so that means the you're debate. basically, in a Roman Catholic way, partaking of the Lord's Supper. Well, yes, yes. But it, it, it also means that apparently they were all morning people back then. <laughs> So, so they they got going very early. Now, immediately when Eck and Karlstad would debate. Now, Karlstad, he was a book guy. He would come in with tons of books, and of course, they had a lot of debates as to how the the debate was going to be held and everything. And initially, Karlstad brings all his books in, <laughs> and and Eck makes a point. And of course, they were also insisted that there be stenographers that were going to write down everything. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, there were two schools. They also agreed on two schools that were going to to evaluate who won it. And one was the University at Paris. The other was the University of Erfurt. So that's why they needed the stenographer. So this is different than some of the modern stuff where you have these secret meetings under the Capitol in a, in a room where only one side can come in. This is right out in the open, isn't <laughs> oh, yes. it? Yeah, and it's a, documented. Yeah, and, and it was. And in fact, initially there was going to be held at the university, but they had to be moved to the, to the palace auditorium because there were so many people that were there. And so we have this debate, and initially you have Karlstad there opening his books, you know, proving and, and, and quoting from the books and everything, and Eck is, you know, bang, 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 here, you know, here's the arguments, and then he has to wait for for Karlstad to That's ponderously, you know. So if you're there, you're thinking Eck is, Eck is winning this debate, but Eck realizes that even though Karlstad is slow to his answers, they're very well thought out and right. put down. And so when people are going to look at the manuscript and 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 see what was going on, they're not going to see hear the presentation. Ah. And they're not going to be swayed by the presentation. They're going to see all these facts. And, they're going to see substance. Uh, absolutely. And so Karlstad is going to win. By the way, Luther had to have a falling out of, with Karlstad uh, a couple of years later, but that's mm-hmm. – uh, not to the point right now. Uh, he was a, he was the dean of the university at, at the time. So, so let so, me just higher level really quick. Uh, sure. Is this still we're on the Leipzig dispu- disputation? Leipzig disputation. Right. Yes, this is going to be mostly on the Leipzig disputation. Yeah. So, so immediately X says, "Okay, we got to change rules. No books." No books. No <laughs> so Karlstad doesn't do so well after that, you know. And and basically what 
Eck really wants, he wants Luther. Oh, yeah. And so then, then the venue. Well, actually, when I say the venue, I, I don't mean the place where it's at, but the the debaters change. Sure. It becomes Luther and Eck, and Luther and Eck go at it. Now, I bet what, the fire flies here. Yeah. So Luther had a, he had actually thirteen propositions he wanted debated, but one of them, uh, I'm not going to read all thirteen, but I do want to read uh, uh, one of them. Uh, a few of them, actually. Uh, the first one is uh, seven. He he who babbles about free will being the master of good and evil deeds shows that he does not know that what faith, contrition, and free will are. Nor does he know who imagines that one is not justified alone by faith in the word or faith, uh, or that faith is not lost in every mortal sin. Let me jump back to another one, uh, two. To deny that man sins even when doing good, that venial sin is pardonable, not according to its nature, but by the mercy of God, or that sin remains in the child after baptism, that is equivalent to crushing Paul and Christ underfoot. That is a very significant statement, because what Luther is basically saying here, if you deny that man can do good, um, or that if you deny that a man sins when doing good, um, unless he has faith, you know, you are are crushing Paul and Christ. What's he talking about, Paul and Christ? So so help me here. He's he's talking about scriptures. Yes. And so what he's saying is, look, to be able to say that a man can do good or that... uh, uh, or that he can be saved by anything but mercy. Yes. That's to crush Paul and and Christ under the, under the foot. In other words, you you're you're going against scripture. You know, I think I think Luther had a really good gut feel of what free will so-called is all about. Oh yeah. And even in our own day, it's lifted up as something really great. Um, but, you know, when we go back to the scriptures, we find that uh, mankind is dead, D-E-A-D, yeah. in his transgressions and sins, which means that he doesn't have the ability to do anything good toward God. And right. That, that seems like it resolves a lot of the argument to me. Right. It, and it is. And this is where he goes. This is uh, – let's jump to 10 here. It is certain that the merit of Christ is the treasure of the church. And that the treasure is enhanced by the merits of the saints, but no one except a, fi- a filthy flatterer or one who strays from the truth and embraces certain false practices and usages of the church pretends that the merits of Christ are the treasure of indulgences. Oh, my. This is where he goes back to the indulgence. Remember, the 95 Thesis was all about indulgences. You know, uh, Johannes right. Tetzel selling indulgences when the coin in the coffer rings and the soul from Purgatory Spring. <laughs> now, now here you see Luther kind of even moving away from the idea of purgatory. You'll you you'll actually see him talking about purgatory in these areas there. But you see, he doesn't. He's he's a lot less enthusiastic about purgatory yeah. at this point. But there's there's a few things in here, and so you see this justification by grace through faith. 
That's huge. And and that's and that's huge. And this is where where the attack is. So that's the first part of it. But there's another wrinkle here at Leipzig, which is very interesting. Leipzig is near Bohemia. The Bohemians had taken and, and had attacked Saxony provinces. This is where Leipzig is. They have they have taken and, and attacked them and and pillaged them and and done certain things. Who are the Bohemians? I don't know. The followers of John Hus, Jan Hus, hmm. from the Council of Constance. And this is this gets really key here, because at one point Eck is accusing Luther of being a Bohemian. And of course, Luther's like, "I'm not a Bohemian. <laughs> I, you know, you're you're nothing but a follower of 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 John Wycliffe and and Jan Hus, and you're a Bohemian." And, and Luther. Of course. So there's some name calling going on. Oh, yeah. On. He immediately repudiates it. But then they break for lunch. And Luther goes over to the, the university and starts looking at the Council of Constance uh, records where, where Huss was burned at the stake. And, and he starts reading the records from 1413 when Huss was burned at the stake. He comes back afterwards, you know, at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They mm-hmm. reconvene. And he says, you know what? There's a lot of things in here that if you look at them and and understand it right, Huss is very evangelical. He's <laughs> he's uh, very much right. And although he wouldn't go all the way as to support him just at Leipzig, it was very shortly afterwards that, that Luther realized that, yes, he was in a great agreement with Jan Huss and with John Wycliffe. How about that? And so you you see that coming up, but here's the big thing that comes out of of Leipzig, and I'm going to read another one. The very callous decrees of the Roman Pontiff, which have appeared in the last four hundred years, prove that the Roman Church is superior to all others. Against them stand the history of eleven hundred years, the test of divine Scripture, and the decree of the Council of Nicaea. The most sacred of all councils. Hmm. So what is Luther referring to to turn around and say, your last 400 years where you've been standing up and say, you have authority to do this, you have authority to do that. And, of course, what Luther is attacking here is the authority of the pope. Oh, my, yes. And the pope to to declare uh, scriptures and even the councils, and especially a council like the Council of Constance. And so he's alluding back to Nicaea, which was 325 A.D. The Council of Nicaea was before anyone was really claiming that the Pope, after, I mean, after all, it was uh, actually called and convened by Constantine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have him relaying to that. And, of course, he's agreeing with that because it agrees with Scripture. Yes. And here's the key. We've got the sola scriptura really starting to come into its own. Oh, there it is. Now, there's a couple issues that you look at with this. And and one of the issues is of course what is authority? That's a very big question. What is authority? What is truth? You know, the old pilot Pontius Pilate question, what is truth? Yeah. Can we know truth? Of course, for the atheist, there is no truth. No ultimate truth. No ultimate truth. It's all relative. 
and it's it's whoever can get the upper hand and who can ever can yeah. can force their which opinion. is why we see today in the political realm it's it's all about power right exactly and so you you have that that kind of thing but of course back then everyone believed in god and so there was this whole concept of truth yeah now the the concept of truth though at that point was you have the scriptures you have the uh councils and you have the popes now, I'm looking at my clock here, and you're not going to believe this. Uh, today we're talking with uh, Pastor Mark Diedrich, and he in many ways is a scholar of the Reformation and of Luther in particular and others. Um, we've got only a couple of minutes left, so uh, how do we summarize all this? Well, I, this I is really I, important. I've I learned it, how to pronounce it. It's Leipzig, Dutch. <laughs> Leipzig. <laughs> so what – I, I think I can summarize it real quick because there's the second part, and I think we'll get be able to finish it right here. The second part of that is why do we have councils and popes yes. standing in between the scriptures? Oh, they're saying you can't handle the truth. You Isn't know, basically something. It, but it, but what Luther is standing up and saying no. People can understand the scriptures. Amen. We talk about the perspicuity of scriptures. You can understand the scriptures. You can learn directly from the scriptures. You can you can follow the scriptures. And so Luther is standing up for the laity, and in two years, he will be translating the New Testament in the German language for the people that is so to neat. read. And so that's what we understand. This is key because now we have sola scriptura and that the, the laity – can should study the scriptures yes and um that that is a good place to stop today and uh, i want to uh, encourage our listeners dear listener if you uh, are new to the christian faith a uh, couple of things one is open your bible and just read it but also associate yourself with a local church and be accountable to the pastor the elders your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, maybe in a Bible study or a simple prayer meeting, uh, because we are not alone in this. Uh, the scriptures are perspicuous, and we can understand them for ourselves, and yet coupled with that is the importance of the local church. Is that right, Mark? That's right. The local church helps you. Are some things difficult? Peter tells us yeah. that sometimes Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. <laughs> they didn't and, even always agree. I, and, I, I seem to recall, and, and that's that's why you you need the church. Of course, the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, he it loves is. he loves his church, and and uh, he instituted the church for believers to have fellowship with. Yeah. Well, we have much more we can talk about, and again, we've been uh, blessed to have uh, the Reverend Mark Diedrich in the studio today. Uh, just a wealth of historical church, historical background. And Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to be here, Dan. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer 